the Master's in Counseling Program at Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling present this podcast as a resource for aspiring and current professionals, as well as members of the greater community. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent those of Multnomah University or its faculty of Alternative Behavioral Therapy or New Pattern Counseling. Smart Counsel is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Counsel has been produced by Reese Basimio and Joshua Moore. Inside my head And are these things that I despise But to be broken isn't such a bad disguise You can't break down can't give in All you need is love Welcome to Smart Council Pain Management 101 Smart Council is a podcast dedicated to providing resources and perspectives on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma to providers, students, and prospective students. I'm Reese. I'm Joshua Moore. And we are here with Debbie Quick. Hi! Hi, I'm glad to see you both. Debbie, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your corner of the mental health world? Well, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I've worked in Portland for about almost 20 years, um, working both in mental health and medical fields, um, worked in community mental health and dialysis at a nursing home and several different hospitals doing admissions. And I'm currently working for, I work for Care Oregon as a behavioral health care coordinator and the exceptional needs care coordination team. Okay, yeah, so it's uh, very important work. So fun bit of history. So once upon a time when I was but a brand new, fresh, green, unlicensed therapist, uh, Debbie was one of my supervisors. Mm. From her, I learned many, many things about the wonders and wiles of diagnosing and boundaries and everything. So thank you for making me part of who I am. No problem. It was a great growing experience for me, too. Okay, good. (laughs) Working with you was a growing experience. Did you hear that? Thank you, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. I'm really delighted to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, so we are talking about uh, pain management today. So um, maybe very quickly, can you share a little bit about uh, what makes this topic interesting to you? I've found that pain is something that comes up in every job that I've had in the past, um, working in mental health, working in medical. Um, pain is a constant. Um, we have people who have chronic pain. Um, people who are recovering from injuries, people with illnesses, tons and tons of different kinds of pain. And one of the things that I've seen as a pattern through my career is there have been all sorts of different theories uh, about how to deal with pain because it comes up with everybody. People who have mental health diagnoses have a much, much higher percentage of um, diagnoses that deal with that deal with pain, especially people with trauma. Mm-hmm. Trauma is really, really highly associated with fibromyalgia and mm-hmm. other myalgias, mm-hmm. which is just another word for pain, pretty much. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, so we, it's just really interesting when you see trauma so highly associated with pain, 
you got to say to yourself, there's some kind of connection here. And sure. maybe as behavioral health professionals, we need to be involved in dealing with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I read somewhere that uh, fibromyalgia and trauma are more closely linked than sugar and diabetes. Yeah, I've heard yeah. that. I want to say something like 90% yeah. of people with fibromyalgia have behavioral health, yep. or maybe it's 90% of people with behavioral health have fibromyalgia, but it's, it's, an, it's an astounding correlation. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, so... This is really interesting. So usually when I would hear a term like pain management, I would assume physical pain, which would often make me think of maybe there was an injury, a physical mm-hmm. injury. Um, and usually when I would hear someone say trauma, I would assume probably emotional pain of right. some sort. But this this connection sounds really important where a trauma that may be, may be physical, but maybe emotional, mental, sexual, otherwise, mm-hmm. sounds like it also manifests in physical pain also. Right. Right, and there's a lot of theories about that too. Um, I'm not, I don't know everything there is to know about this, but I do know that trauma does tend to lead to people having, you know, being more hypervigilant, a lot more tensing of the muscles, a lot more probably pulling in. People tend to hold traumas in different parts of the body. So you might hear somebody having stomach pain all the time with. They do tons and tons of mm-hmm. medical testing and they can never find anything that's wrong with them. And then it turns out you find out they've had some kind of trauma, childhood trauma, and it tends to be, again, like that high correlation. So it's real pain. That's the one thing that I that I try to stress very heavily with people I work with is nobody is doubting you're in pain. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are told after they go to several doctors, well, it's all in your head. Mm-hmm. And we want you to go see a psychiatrist or a therapist. And I like to stress to my clients that, of course, it's in your head because our brain controls everything that happens in our bodies. So pain is in your head, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Pain is very real. I'm tempted to make a Harry Potter reference here, but... (laughs) (laughs) Please do. I'd get it, maybe. (laughs) Right. Well, um, okay, something in of the line in the last book where Harry asks... Professor Dumbledore, Professor, was any of this, was all this just in my head? And he says, of course it was in your head, Harry, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Yeah. Apparently that applies to magic and to pain. Yeah, um, I so. specifically <laughs> remember that too when I watched that scene in Harry Potter. Um, I think I saw it in the, I read it and then I saw it in the movie that I related very much to that. And I remember thinking, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I wish that therapists could have more interaction with these doctors, these specialists, neurosurgeons, just any kind, orthopedists, all these people who say there's nothing wrong with you and it's all in your head because those two things contradict each other right there. I mean, how can you say it's in your head and there's nothing wrong with you? There's obviously something going on. So we need to be able to work with people to get more information, find out more about their history, find out more about their family history, um, and also take it very seriously and not just say to somebody, oh, if you just you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, your pain will go away, or it just, it'll just go away eventually. Well, it's just like an awful thing to say to a client or a person suffering anyway, oh, just get over it or just yeah. pull yourself up minimizing invalidating is never helpful yeah and especially in the case of of pain it sounds like a a huge barrier to getting help was just convincing your professional to to believe you to take you seriously right um that just sounds extremely disheartening right and this is a i think we have even a bigger barrier now is that right now the federal government is heavily regulating the pain management industry they are cutting way back on permissions for the doctors to actually prescribe pain medication. When I first came into this field working in medical, 
every patient was given a scale of one to 10, asking what your pain was with one being no pain and 10 being the worst pain that you've ever seen, ever had or could imagine. And pretty much everybody who was over a six or a seven was given pain medication. They said, you know, we have this pain medication. We're gonna treat your pain. Um, hospitals, the main goal was pain reduction. Um, it became a huge industry. Everybody was on pain medication and people were feeling satisfied by that. And then within the last couple of years, I'd probably say the last five or probably more, all the research is pointing to pain medication doesn't help with chronic pain. Mm. It helps with acute pain. It's contraindicated in cases of chronic pain, Interesting. especially in back pain, yeah. headaches, just anything like that. It helps for a little while, then it stops helping, and it becomes a rebound effect where when you stop taking the medication, you suffer a great deal of pain mm-hmm. leading to, not addiction, what's the word I'm looking for? Dependence. Dependence, yes. So that's, um, that's happening right now, and there's mandates coming down from the federal government telling doctors they have to start weaning people off. People are really, really, really upset about that, I and they're really so. scared. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I can think of a few cases in my clinical practice where it's like, well, that's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I'm sure we can all think that. Right. Yeah. We, maybe we have some exposure to those people. Right. right. Or, you know, W.U. used the word lifeline, talking about, you know, a person's pain medication is their lifeline that they're holding on to. Right. So. Yeah, and I, and I find that both in medical and mental health. Um, I've had two cases that I've worked with where people were taking very, very small doses of, of um, pain medication. And for some reason, putting these people with um, severe persistent mental illness on this little tiny dose of pain medication is the, the little bit that's been keeping them out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. They feel like they've been taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Both of these people now are in danger of being taken off their medications. And they're, I'm not hearing from these people because they don't really understand what's going on. But their caretakers are terrified. When these people are taken off their pain medications, they worry that they're going to end up back in the hospital, the psychiatric hospital. Which would eventually be more expensive. Right. And also eventually um, to the state hospital because these people were in the state hospital in the past mm. and it's most likely the chances they're going to repeat that. But mm. there's not much we can do because obviously pain medication is not a medication that we use for mental health problems. Right. So yeah. that's an issue. Yeah. And then we have people who have a real issue with pain and they've been dealing with pain for years and years and years and have been on pain medication and now they're being told that that's going to go away. They're calling all around, everywhere, trying to figure out what am I going to do. Mm-hmm. I've had calls from many, many of our members at the insurance company saying, my doctor is cutting me off from medication. I need to find a new doctor. They said, well, that's, that's, your, that's your prerogative. If you want to find a new doctor, you can, and I can give you a list. But I'm going to tell you right now that when you go to this new doctor, they're not going to continue your pain medication. Mm. And now you're not even going to have the wean. You're going to have nothing. Oh, my goodness. So trying to educate people about that has been very difficult. Yeah. So this is bringing up some some questions. I want to back up a little bit. Sure, sure. And you talked about um, a 1 to 10 scale for measuring pain. Yes. Um, so when we are measuring a person's pain, what, what is it that we're, that, what is it being measured? Um, well, it's, I guess you'd call that. Um, the Lichen scale? Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of those. Um, <laughs> sometimes they use faces because people just point out, you know, the grimacing and things like that. Uh-huh. So reading, reading pain is subjective. Okay. So people, like a one for me might be very different uh, um, than a one for you. I think I have a very high pain tolerance. However, I also have a very severe issue with my hips. Mm-hmm. So I'm walking around. I, I have doctors telling me all the time, oh, you know, there are people who have the exact same diagnosis as you do in your hips, and they're walking around with no pain at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, 
first of all, I'm thinking, shut up. <laughs> right. You're not in my body. You don't know what it is. And I'm like, oh, I'm really, really happy for that person. Yeah, who very unhelpful. Uh-huh. So, you know, uh, let's say I'm having my worst day and I say it's a 10. Then you imagine a person who's been dealing with cancer and has been on chemotherapy and they're, they've been taking this medication that's making their skin burn and they they're, have sores in their mouths. Mm-hmm. A 10 for them is going to be very, very different than a 10 for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we really can't judge another person's pain. For sure. And I'm um, thinking of like the emotional correlate of, you know, someone has a breakup or someone, someone, someone gets, you know, let go from their job, you know, for one person that could be, you know, a minor inconvenience for another person that's like a devastating end of the right. world. Same painful situation, right. interpreted differently. Right, right. And I think, you know, we can also look at people's histories when it comes to trauma and pain. Look back on what's happened. If you have somebody who has a long history of, of medical issues, they might be a lot more tolerant of their own pain, or they might feel a little bit of pain and think, oh no, here mm-hmm. we go again. Um, just like with trauma, you know, you somebody's responding to a breakup, and this might be somebody who has an attachment disorder right. or something like that. Yeah. You're going to have a whole different set of issues that you're dealing with when you're in, in counseling with mm-hmm. them. So it sounds like and the moral of the story is we're measuring internal experiences mm-hmm. that are very subjective, so very personal, and they're all going to be different. Right. So like in the same way that different social groups comparing each other's pain is kind of an awkward conversation, you know, comparing emotional experiences right. kind of awkward, comparing physical pain. It likewise sounds like a kind of fruitless conversation. Right. And I, think, I know what you're going through is just not, right. not a productive like no. line of thought. Right. Yeah. And I think Talk. it can be very invalidating too. Yes. Um, like if you have a broken leg and you have to be out of work for a long period of time because your work involves you being able to stand up and walk around. And someone's like, well, I had my broken leg and I was back to work the next day. <laughs> And you know, that's extremely invalidating because you know in your personal experience that that was not something that was possible for you. Mm-hmm. And it can lead to a lot of feelings of guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, I was able to tolerate this pain. How come you're not able to? How come you're not at work? Mm-hmm. You know, why are you not um, functioning in society? And, you know, and then also sometimes pain can lead to people having to apply for disability and, and remove themselves from the workforce. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of people are caregivers for family members. And they find themselves not able to take care of people anymore because they mm-hmm. they're in a lot of pain, and I think there's there's a lot of shame and yeah. guilt about that. Definitely. So it seems like a good uh, good work for a therapist to do with a person living with a lot of pain would be just to validate their their experience, or mm-hmm. you know maybe give the client give the individual words to describe their experience and freedom to describe it and freedom to own it as yes. this is my experience. It is as bad for me as I feel it is. Yes, of course, it's different than other people's, but for me, it's it's this. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great, and I think that, and working on that validation and that just being present for the person and letting them tell their story is very, very important. I've had people that have come in with terrible headaches to therapy, and, and by the end of the session, they're just like, oh my gosh, I forgot about my headache, because they got so involved yeah. in being able to tell their story and be free and feel at ease that their headache is gone. Now, that's not saying their headache's not going to come back as soon as they get in the car right. to go home. But I think it is very validating for people to be able to share their pain story without judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of something like that, you know, recognizing someone can come into therapy and get their mind off their pain, like the headaches go away, uh, maybe at least until they get to the car. <laughs> when talking about pain management, what is our hoped for outcome? The outcome of pain management is not always the cessation of pain. And I think that that is what the member, client, patient, whatever you want to call them, is looking for. Mm -hmm. Their first thought is, 
I'm going to go and get treatment and my pain is going to go away. Mm, okay. Um, sometimes that is the case. Sometimes you can go and have an operation and your pain goes away and it takes a little while, but then it's gone and you resume your life. Sometimes the pain can be managed and sometimes the pain stays at the same intensity that it's at and there's not much that anybody can do about it. Mm -hmm. So in cases like that, what we're looking for is quality of life. How are we going to be able to live with this pain? How, you know, how can we make somebody feel comfortable enough to be able to do the things in life that are important to them? If somebody was caring for a family member, how are we going to be able to get them to the point where they can care for this person or have somebody care for this person where they feel satisfied that the needs are being met? So I think at first, when people hear that their pain is not going to be 100% resolved, there's a lot of grief. Mm -hmm. And um, dealing with the grief is going to be an important part of the counseling mm -hmm. because the, the grief needs to be dealt with before you can actually kind of move on. It's kind of like when you're looking at motivational interviewing and looking at pre-contemplation, contemplation planning, things yeah. like that. You're going to get a lot of people coming in not believing that anything in therapy is going to make any difference to them because my, my need is medical. I need right. a pill. You need to give me a pill to make right. this go away. And not really believe that they have any power in being able to manipulate how the pain affects their lives. Showing them that they, that they can have some power. Yes. It may not be something that they want to see because that would require that they do some work, but that could end up being very empowering should they be able to see, oh wow, I, there, I have this situation I can't get away from, but there's things I can do within it to still right. have a life, still have a quality right. of life. Yeah, and I'm hoping that the next generation of people coming in with pain are going to have a much better shot than the current generation that we have, and we're still trying to figure out what to do with, um, who have been really dependent on pain medication to deal with their pain. So I think people coming up now are gonna to be told by their doctors, okay, you're having this pain, we're gonna use some anti-inflammatories to help you with the swelling, we're gonna use ice, we're gonna use these things, and then we're gonna get you into acupuncture. Uh -huh. Or we're gonna get you into chiropractic or massage, or we're gonna do, Neurofeedback, or we're going to yeah. do any kind of <laughs> any kind of um, you know thing like that, or we're going to do therapy. We're going to do behavioral health. I know that there are clinics out there like like Quest right now that's doing comprehensive pain management, where they they're doing the whole shebang. They're mm -hmm. doing the the acupuncture. They're doing the um, and I'm not meaning to give a shout out to Quest, but they're sure. the only ones I can think of right on the top I, of my head. I will give a shout out to Quest. <laughs> yeah, so. I would actually too. <laughs> so, and my company contracts with them. So yeah, it works really well. But we have people that go that, you know, or hear about it or go there who were saying, well, they're not going to give me pain meds, so I'm not going to go there. Or yeah. they go one time and they say, you know, I didn't really want to get stuck with needles and that wasn't really my goal. They really want to be told, okay, yeah, you can do all these great things that we know of now for pain management along with the medication therapy. So I'm thinking as, you know, we're going to have a whole generation of people coming up that are going to be a lot more open to pain management, hopefully, because they're going to hear about it right from the very beginning. Right. They're not going to have this whole legacy of being told, we're going to, we're going to take care of your pain for you. That seems like a lot better, like a, a baseline message of we're going to teach you how to live with it rather than we're going to get rid of it for you. Right. That just seems so much more realistic. Right. And we were also optimistic when that was happening, too. We thought we have these great new, this opiates, you know, these are so great. They're readily available. They're not that expensive. Mm -hmm. And we're going to pass them out like candy and everyone's going to feel good. And uh, there weren't any longitudinal studies at that time, and uh -huh. now there are. Yeah, <laughs> you know they have. I don't. I can't. I can't cite any right now. But mm -hmm. there's just been so much research now that shows that that's just not. Mm -hmm. I mean, and people they're still in pain. They're taking this medication. They're still in horrible pain. Yeah. But they don't want to let go of their pain medication. Yeah. I think it's potentially like the pitfall of psychoactive substances in general, mm -hmm. like whether it's uh, medical opiates or whether it's crack cocaine, alcohol, cannabis. It does make you feel good for a little bit. Yeah. And then 
the crash, the withdrawal. The avoidance of pain might actually cause more pain later. Yes, generally. Right, right, exactly. And trauma and in pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Do you think that we're going to have issues with uh, other dependencies of substance abuse, such as heroin, which we've seen patterns with other clinics that expended enormous amounts of opiates were shut down and then their client base transitioned to street drugs? Yeah, I think that will happen. I have no doubt um, that it already is happening. I know that a lot of our, the people that are most vulnerable out there are, are buying they're buying methadone, they're buying um, opiates, they're buying all that stuff on the streets in pill form. Mm-hmm. And there's going to come a point where people, it's not as readily available and people are going to probably turn to things like heroin. I think a lot of people right now, and, and um, no judgment one way or another, but I think a lot of people are turning to cannabis and they're turning to, right. to marijuana and you know people are trying to um, work on different balances of this and that to help. Um, and a lot of people feel that it has a lot less side effects, so they're, mm-hmm. they, they're pleased with that for their pain management more than they are with opiates. I think it's going to take a long time before the medical community really meshes with that community and mm-hmm. comes up with some kind of plan. Yeah. It's interesting, though, yes. that in Oregon right now, the, um, the federal guidelines for medication management for pain and the, the legality of marijuana are kind of coinciding, so I think we're yes. going to see a big turn to people going mm-hmm. to medical right. marijuana. You know, I, I don't know much about this field, but uh, it's harder to research because there's no guaranteed potency. It's not a synthetic. Right. It's going to be very difficult to create the studies needed to create the assurances needed mm-hmm. to do some sort of integration. Right. So it's just going to play right. out, yeah. it sounds like. And, and in my time working in community mental health, I found a lot of, um, there were people, yes, who were genuinely using it to deal with pain, but I found a lot of, what's the word, justification, people justifying use. One of the things I found was cyclical vomiting. Um, Mm. People would say, I'm using medical marijuana for cyclical vomiting. And then you'd say, oh, so you started using medical marijuana to help with that. Oh, but it turns out they were smoking marijuana before the cyclical vomiting started. Mm. And in two cases, people actually stopped their marijuana for legal reasons and their cyclical vomiting went away. So there's a lot of that where people feel like they're treating themselves, you Mm. know, with drugs. Right. They feel like this is what's helping me. And a lot of times it turns out, number one, they're not feeling any better. And number two, the drugs are what started the problem in the right, first place. Right. So we're seeing a lot of and, rebound. And people do need that feeling that they're doing something. Yes. But 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 yeah, if it's causing the problem, then then no, we we've got to untangle that. Yeah. You, know, you know. Yeah, they're still sick, yeah. and it's not helping, and they're not willing to look into other ways because they're so they're so attached to this idea that this is what's going to help them. Right. Um, so I mean, the therapist really has their work cut out for them. Number one is is getting the medical, like maybe social workers in primary care clinics or behaviorists in there to really start directing people toward these alternative methods of pain management. And this might not be the right topic for today, but uh, marijuana as a drug, some people have described it as an emotional anesthetic, which is why it works so well with pain disorders. Right. And some of that's going to depend on, is it the full marijuana plant? Is it just CBD? Is it just extracted THC oil? That's all going to be different. Or is it edible? Is it smoked? I've read a lot about it, but I I can't even speak to that with 100% assurance. Right. You guys could do a whole other podcast. We'll do another podcast. I mean, there's going to be. No, I think think you should. I'd be willing. I really want to hear that. Okay. (laughs) And hear what people have to say about it because I think it is an up and coming thing. And there's going to be a lot more regulation, hopefully, in the years to come about how. And they'll be prescribing. And they're like, I'm going to prescribe this to you. This, you know, you can have 70% of this and 30% of this. But it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of lobbying before right. that happens and and I'm not you know 100% convinced one way or another yet whether it's going to be effective right. in the long term yeah right. speaking of drugs 
synthetic and otherwise. And thinking back to the, the maxim, Josh, that you mentioned of sometimes we cause more problems trying to get rid of pain than there were to begin with. Right. Or I totally misquoted you, but it was, <laughs> that, was, kind of familiar. It was that, that, that sometimes idea. Sometimes the avoidance of pain causes pain. That was, it, that was it. Right. The avoidance of pain causes more pain. So, so with that and recognizing that sometimes when people are living with chronic pain, it's chronic severe pain. And then it can be quite, quite severe. Debilitating. Debilitating. Mm-hmm. So with that, I, I would like to talk with you too about when do we try to change the situation and eliminate the pain? And when do we try to change our relationship to pain? Yeah. And in thinking both on an individual basis, an individual changing their relationship, mm-hmm. as well as maybe what is our societal value around pain? Right. And that's, that's a really good question. And there's a lot of socioeconomic pieces to this as well because we're looking right now at um there's in in insurance there's things that are considered above line and the things and i don't know what line is (laughs) but there's a line and above that line things are covered and below that line things aren't covered so there's certain diagnoses that are not covered under insurance Mm -hmm. so if you have that i'm thinking plantar fasciitis which is an extremely painful foot got, condition. I got that. And um, I think that's not covered. I mean, yeah. I don't think, I think you can go to your doctor and your doctor can give you advice on it, whatever, but any treatment, any kind of, you know, surgery or anything like that is not going to be covered. Right. So I think something like anything <laughs> below the ankle is not covered. Huh. Um, you know, if you break your toe these days, they don't do anything. Yeah. So you might as well not even go get an x-ray because broken toe, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so, oh, that's news <laughs> to you guys, huh? A little bit. Uh, well, yeah. I was an orthopedic medic in the army, so, I mean, we obviously you took good it, care yeah. of them. I mean, whenever we had to. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the idea of transferring to the civilian side and then being told you can't treat them for plantar fasciitis, it's like... Well, Why yes, not? Right. Because like, you know, like 80% of the army has it or something ridiculous. Right. Well, I imagine <laughs> that they would, and especially <laughs> those big, thick boots. But they, it, it's not like you can't go to your doctor and the doctor can't say, you know, oh, here, you know, I've heard this great research about using this this tape, that pink tape that the runners use in the Olympics and everything. A little spider tape, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you can do that or you can take anti-inflammatories and here's what I suggest to you. But they're not going to send you to an orthopedic specialist or podiatrist. So they'll treat you, but you're not going to get anything fancy for treatment. Um, so you have to look at that and the Medicare, Medicaid people, what are they even covered for? You know, what, when you have a, a terrible toothache, are they going to go in there and give you caps and crowns and then blah, 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 do all this stuff? No. If you have a tooth that's that bad, they'll, you know, they'll drill it for you or whatever. But then the next thing they're going to do is they're going to pull that tooth out. Hmm. So if you're having this horrible tooth, and I've worked with people who have a lot of shame about missing teeth when they're going out to apply for jobs. For sure. you know, how can I go yeah. apply for a job if I don't have teeth? So you have people who might not seek that out and they're going to go to the emergency room with abscesses and things like that. And yeah. it's painful. So encouraging that, and luckily, mm-hmm. OHP now covers dental. Oh, that's good. Wow. So that's you, awesome. You encourage them to get preventive care so that it doesn't get to that. Right. But we had a period of time where it didn't. So yeah, you know, you yeah. go to the emergency room, get some antibiotics, and then you, we you can go somewhere and just get your tooth pulled out. Well, and I, you know, this is kind of another topic for another day. But you're thinking <laughs> about like social services and trying to help people get out of poverty. You think dental would be a big part of that? Um, and there's you know, getting their teeth straight and, and getting them feeling good about themselves right. and having good presence is going to help them get better jobs. Get better jobs. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've worked in a lot of humanitarian programs where dentists literally went to Africa <laughs> to help them straighten their teeth. Mm-hmm. And you're like. Why? Well, because they have a much better future when they have straight teeth. Mm-hmm. Right, a lot more you know, confidence. A lot and, more confidence. And your yeah. face mm-hmm. is the first thing that people see. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's those considerations. So looking into if they've been to several doctors, so you're talking about whether or not we treat the pain or do we look at learning to accept it. Right. Fibromyalgia, 
there's very, very limited amounts of treatments these days. Gabapentin is something that seems to be successful with some people. Fibromyalgia, also Cymbalta, um, and some other medications. But it's only going to deal with a certain amount of pain. At some point, the person is going to have to accept this is... This is wait, there's no surgery, there's no miracle cure for fibromyalgia. So I'm gonna have to look into alternative medication or I'm sorry, alternative treatments. <laughs> right. Alternative um, medication. Yeah, alternative <laughs> medication like cannabis. Right. Um, so you know, that at that point you might want to look into the the acupuncture, the chiropractic, you know, whatever interesting things out there, whatever research is showing is helping right now for fibromyalgia. But there's gonna come a point with fibromyalgia or any other kinds of, you know, MS, things like that, right. where the doctors have done all they can, where the alternative treatments have done all they can and it's time to talk about what can I do and it's, it's really great if these things all coincide so you're not saying okay I've done everything I've used everything up now I'm gonna take responsibility for my pain mm-hmm. if it can be part of a bigger picture so something like quest center right. where they're gonna have somebody who's actually gonna do an evaluation on your medication they're gonna be doing the alternative treatments and they're gonna be having the groups to talk to people about ways they're gonna deal with their pain so if these other things are not effective, you still have some control over what you're doing. So things like exercise, dealing with trauma, diet, mm-hmm. dietary. There are a number of things that cause pain, like irritable bowel syndrome. For sure. You can work with a dietitian and come up with a plan where you can control what goes in your body. Right. And you can really discover things that make you feel better. IBS, irritable bowel, it can be extremely debilitating and, and can make people lose tons of time at work. Or like celiac or celiac. Any of those like gluten disorders. And they can take control over those things and pain medication is not going to help with that. So, you know, if we can do all if we can do all these things in conjunction with each other, there's going to be certain things like if somebody has a has chronic headaches and they find out they have a brain tumor, this person's going to need to go have surgery. For sure. If they're yes. having bone on bone, you know, in their hip, for example, yeah. you might have to have surgery to fix it and if that surgery doesn't work, you might have to have hip replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the knees or, or yeah. shoulders or things like that. So there's some like really blatantly there's a there's a very physical problem that has a very clear solution. Like you know we remove tumors, we replace bone on bone joints. You know we change our diet if we're having intestinal issues. So so that makes sense. And so we might look at that and say, okay, yeah, we don't need to change our relationship to the tumor unless we're saying yes, we're we're divorcing ourselves from this tumor and having it removed. Yeah. But but it seems like some of these other uh, other conditions where maybe the line's more fuzzy. So like fibromyalgia mm-hmm. or the other myalgia. Conversion disorder, somatic Conversion disorder, disorder, yeah. Seizures. Oh seizures. my goodness, I have people that have yeah. the, um, the psychogenic seizures. Right. That causes a lot of discomfort. Yeah. Or even uh, folks who have had you know injuries or you know back injuries, muscle injuries of various sorts right. that never fully recover. You know, at that point, we're like, okay, so do we send them to unlimited acupuncture and chiropractic for the rest of their lives? Or or at that point, do we t- try the these alternative approaches of can't, what it, what would acceptance look like? What would right. changing your relationship to your pain look like? Right, exactly. And um, just one interesting little factoid to throw out there is that back pain is going to be completely eliminated from pain medication treatment what certain back pain yeah it's basically chronic back pain is just not going to be a covered it's kind of a bad news for me and my torticollis (laughs) no (laughs) that's a stab in the back it'll be interesting yeah it's like it just shoot me you're just like stab in the back yeah it reoccurs every few months right now it's yeah, yeah so that's that's an interesting thing to look at. So if people have had back surgery, and, and I can tell you that um, back surgery being successful, very rare. 
It can be. I mean, if you have something very specific that they have to do, but if you have back pain, the doctor's like, oh, I'm going to go in there and clean things up and stuff like that. Not often very successful. And mm. chronic back pain is going to be one that we're going to be seeing a lot of people saying, my doctor cut me off from pain meds. Mm. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can barely walk. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be seeing a lot of that. So I am a big fan of acupuncture for life. Okay. Um, okay. I'm not saying that you're going three times a week for the rest of your life, but I think you can kind of do it as episodes. Mm-hmm. So I also really like working class acupuncture. Uh, There's one by my house. They have a sliding scale. I you can go there, there as well. Look into that. Yeah. Big, big community. You sit, you sit around. I used to work in dialysis. It looks like a dialysis center because all the, the chairs, you get comfortable. You can bring your own headphones in. and Otherwise, you have Love to it. listen to the didgeridoo. But it, it's it's awesome, and you can find someone you really like to do it, and you go in and you just chill mm-hmm. for however long you want to lie there. You can fall asleep. Everybody mm-hmm. does, but me. I go for episodes, so mm-hmm. I go you know maybe six or eight times, and then I, I take a big break, and then I'm like you know I really need to get back to acupuncture. Mm-hmm. So I, I am definitely a big fan if when you have flare ups, then acupuncture is fantastic. But I am also a big fan of cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing. I think, you know, we have to, we're going to be getting these tons of people, like I said, in pre-contemplative state Mm -hmm. where they're not even going to want to come in because they don't see themselves as being the problem. Mm -hmm. They see the doctor's office, they see the system as being the problem right now. Mm -hmm. And so, and like I said, I think that people in the PCP office, the primary care physician office, um, in the hospitals and all that are going to have to do a lot of this groundwork in getting people to not only know, hey, your meds are being cut off, but to actually sit down with them and have a conversation. Not a little 15-minute provider on patient conversation, but you know, maybe you sit down on a couch or someplace comfortable and talk about the fact that this is a federal thing, this is not personal. We understand that your pain is very real. We understand this is gonna cause a lot of stress for you. There are a lot of other options, but we feel like it would be a fantastic support for you to get the behavioral health component, mm-hmm. um, to have somebody who has dealt with a lot of people who have pain. So just basically these people need to get them in the contemplative state. Mm-hmm. Once they're in the contemplative state, I really feel like we can do some good work with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like at that point we could shift from looking uh, exclusively for external solutions to finding internal solutions. Yes. And then, you know, translating this now through through the lens of addictions treatment, did a person go through pre-contemplation and have a problem? Contemplation, okay, maybe have a problem. You know, preparation, action, okay, help me make some changes. Mm-hmm. So you do a whole bunch of work right at the beginning to go through withdrawals and to get them in a stable situation, hopefully get them housing, get them clean, get them to think in some different ways, try some new habits, some new lifestyles. And then if all goes well, you know, six, eight months down the road, they start shifting into this maintenance mode where their life has a whole lot more stability, things are better, they still have the, the, the addiction disease, they still have like the you know malfunctional parts of the brain, they still have some underlying trauma to work through probably, right. uh, and so they're gonna need to be doing maintenance work right. to say, what do, I, what do I do to just keep myself safe? What do I do to manage triggers, manage, manage cravings? And, and with, with addictions, it seems like, especially when you factor in like the underlying trauma, a major component is being able to see yourself as a person who can handle stuff, who can handle life, who can handle the pain. Uh, you A major key is learning to see yourself as someone who is strong and capable. Right. And it almost seems like something similar could happen with, with pain management too. You know, you might start in a position of saying, I'm helpless before this pain, I need a drug, I need a, I need opiates, I need medications, which they might, and that's a legitimate solution. But it seems like at least in some cases, there could be this internal shift from I'm a person who needs drugs to cope with life to, you know, I'm a person who can handle my pain. It's difficult, it's a lot of work, I need help, but I can handle these it's things. It's hard. It kind of reminds me of the Center for the Intrepid Clinic where they did rehab on, you know, veterans with uh, usually multiple amputees and 
amputations, which is where I worked before. Anyways, the counselors and therapists and rehabilitation specialists that worked there somehow managed to consistently get a large percentage of these guys like moving again, um, and not just moving again, but a lot of them like go on to do Special Olympics and mm-hmm. climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and you know, like the you know literally like specific a guy with no legs <laughs> who literally climbs the yeah. tallest mountain in the world, yeah. and they do a lot of things like that, uh, and they coming out of the Center for the Intrepid, and it's interesting like. Uh, I wonder, you know, I've, I've been to the facilities and looked at all of it and see it's all top quality, but the amount of motivation that they somehow managed to instill in these people, you know, is amazing. Yeah, and it's interesting. I was just thinking as far as veterans or people who are injured um, in the line of duty or things like that, you think about who they were before their injury. Right. And you think these are people who were really motivated. They get up at 5 in the morning or 4.30 in the morning and hike for right. however many miles or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, just, they're very, very motivated to, and very driven. And then they fall into this pit. Yes. So it's just like it's just like emotional trauma. It's physical trauma. They fall into this pit, and you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, most of them we get them to climb halfway out the pit. But it sounds like what you're talking about is they were successful enough in getting them all the way out of the pit, regain who they were before. Right. Even though it's actually do sometimes a lot more actually. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. Without all the advantages that they had before. Right. Exactly. And I think Mm -hmm. that you know we can work. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with sometimes people who have type 2 diabetes, obesity, um, high blood pressure, all in one thing, and they're dealing with a lot of pain. We're not going to get them to run a marathon. However, you know, we could get them back to the point where they're knitting with their friends, you know, or things like that. So it's a much smaller step, but they had things that they really enjoyed doing and they're not doing them anymore. And they don't really realize the benefit of getting back into those things and what it's going to, how much it's going to benefit them. So if we can even just, you know, we're talking about how do we learn to live with the pain? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a little backwards, just get them to do those things they enjoyed. And then maybe the pain starts to recede because their mind gets more, you bring their mind back to where it was, but you're still working on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're still working on either the trauma that led to the pain or the, the emotional trauma or the physical trauma. Um, if you're in an accident, I, I had a, an accident when I was 20-something. I slipped and broke my leg. Mm. And I'll never forget that accident. I can pinpoint exactly like what was in the kitchen when I slipped and fell and who came up to me and what the light was like. You know, I'll never forget that. And, and, and I can imagine people who are in much, much more serious situations than that the the trauma around it, it it's just going to be devastating so it's not just like we're going to make the pain go away and all the pain's going to go away right. so there's a lot of work to do but we also want to get into a place of quality yeah quality and sense of yeah my, my, my pain hasn't gone away but i've been able to sort of reconstruct my life or reconstruct my identity in yeah. a way that is functional maybe even pretty abundant but just you, you know you're a different person with, with your pain you know it's just i don't know why this just popped into my head but i was just thinking about dbt and I wonder how effective when you're working with somebody who's got a personality disorder and there's a, you know, probably a very large correlation between borderline personality disorder and pain mm-hmm. management, pain issues. And I'm just wondering, you know, with the DBT, when you're giving people the skills they need to be able to handle their interpersonal relationships, if there's a correlation between that and a decrease in pain. Hmm. So that would be definitely interesting. I'm sure there's been research studies on it. So Somebody should research that. Right, right. Because I'm just thinking, you know, I'm thinking about regular cognitive behavioral therapy and in my mind I'm, I'm, I'm looking at charts and things like that of talking to somebody, what was the precursor for pain? What did you do then? What came after that? You know, what can we, if you see the sign next time, what can you do differently? And stuff like that. But I think also DBT, um, I taught DBT, I don't know if you did too, but at um, Cascadia and hmm. I, I just found it to be one of the most effective tools I've ever used with anybody. And um, I found some of those skills rub off on myself, even though I 
have a pretty good handle on my emotional regulation mm-hmm. at times. At times. Um, so, you know, that I, I think that that might be another thing to look into is people with personality issues, learning those those self-soothing, learning the interpersonal, learning more about being able to express emotions. Because um, you can imagine, like I was talking about earlier, when you hold your emotions in and you get stomach aches, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, I can't even identify what that feels like because I don't have a word for it right. or I don't have anything to relate to. So um, that might be another thing we can look into. And aside from the motivational interviewing and the cognitive behavioral. Yeah. One last area I want to hit before we, we work toward wrapping up is, so, so think, I'm thinking about the counselor, the social worker, you know, the intern counselor who's in the room with an individual living with chronic pain of you know, whatever sort. So I guess a two-pronged question. What would be the most helpful things to do or to say, uh, as well as what would be the most harmful things to do or say? Like what are microaggressions that very able-bodied, pain-free people might make toward people who live with pain? Well, definitely a micro, I don't know if it's micro, it's kind of macro aggression. Okay. would be like, oh yeah, I saw somebody else who had that same thing as you. Ooh. Yeah, and I think you're just like, you know, you're trying to relate. You're trying to get to a point of connection with the person. It's like, oh yeah, I've worked with several other people. And I've probably mm-hmm. done it too in mm-hmm. therapy when I was younger and less experienced. Like, oh, oh, I had that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. I think one thing, you know, like I said earlier, I think one of the number one things is somebody comes in and is talking to you and says, I just came from my doctor. My doctor made me come here because um, I'm having these pain issues and they say it's all in my head and you know I think I'd first start by just letting them tell me more about it and I would I would definitely validate that their pain is very real and that they're you know and I probably would go into that thing about well you know our all our receptors are you know and everything is on our brain we we channel I mean we are able to process our pain through our brains and that's where that's all coming from so you know there may be something to that in a way but let's look at it in, in, in different terms that your pain is real so I'd want to listen to like I said listen to their pain story and I think if it's somebody who's saying I'm just I want my doctors refusing me pain medicine in the place where I'm at right now where I think I have enough information and I, I, I could I'm not an expert but I think I have enough that I could actually talk to them about it I would talk about what's going on in the pain world you know that right now yeah the the shift has happened where they're they're looking at this and people are having to look at other options and just let them know they have choices because I think that's you know they don't feel like they have choices they feel like the only thing that can happen is they either have to have some kind of surgery to fix it or some medication to make the pain go away so I think letting them know that there are other choices that we can look at and we can do some research together now I'm a I'm a social worker so I'm all about systems so I'm I just love to get together with a person and their doctor and their family member and and do all that stuff like that not everybody has the freedom to do that so letting them know um, helping them research their options making sure they have a nice list of questions to go back to their doctor with saying do you think this would be something that would be helpful for me giving them the resources to let them know what is available but I think you know just also taking a good history uh, maybe doing a genogram (laughs) just trying to come up with you know has this been an issue in your family you know how did other people in your family handle it how were your parents did your parents have physical problems mm-hmm. how did they deal with them how was that for you yeah um, so all of this seems to really just validate yes your pain is a real mm-hmm. thing it's a real entity like there's a relationship with it so a question about one of the things you mentioned so so you talked about how it would be incredibly invalidating to talk with a person about the pain and say something like oh i saw somebody with that same thing or oh i you know i know what, i know exactly what you mean or you know lots of people do this you know yeah. and i could totally see how that would be invalidating but with that, though, I wonder, it, would there be a place, and I don't know the answer to this, would there be a place for that sort of conversation handled differently yep. 
being connective? Like, would it ever be helpful for a person to realize, oh, I'm not alone in this? I do think there's room for that. I don't think it's in the first session. Okay. Yeah, I think after rapport building. Rapport building, I think, is important in any situation. And, you know, if you have a couple of sessions of that, and I'm a a big um, Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Carl Rogers fan and Mr. Rogers, both. (laughs) Because they both believe in unconditional positive regard. So I'm a huge... (laughs) That's a nice connection. That's a good one. (laughs) Mr. Rogers and Carl Rogers. Yeah, I like that. And um, so I think that, you know, I I think, and I, I used to really push this in the community mental health, field you know everybody's like you got to get your everything done in five sessions like no. no no you need to spend at least the first two sessions building rapport and if that means just listening to them and validating them that whole time that's fantastic and I think after that you can start to make connections like you know hey I, I we have this pain management group and I, I know for a fact that there's somebody else who's experienced the same thing mm-hmm. and it might be interesting for you guys to have a conversation to compare what's been effective and what's not mm. um, I think it's just that sometimes we are so anxious to connect with our clients that we we look for coincidences we look for things in, right. in common and we want to um, see them right now for session right yeah like i think you know yeah there's there's certain things that we need to we need to say to ourselves and and this is for you interns out there that you know is this for my benefit or their benefit mm-hmm. um you know because yep. we do feel good about ourselves when we know we have something in common with our with our clients because we, we, we feel connected but it's i think it's more for making us feel good because they want to feel this is my session this is the time that i get to talk about what's going on with me and i really don't care about i mean i do care about you and i definitely want to know if you're married how many kids you have where you live what kind of car <laughs> you drive but i don't want to know it today right. <laughs> and right. i'm probably not going to find out because my therapist has good boundaries for sure well, we have covered a lot of ground. Thank you, Debbie, for sharing your thoughts and your expertise and for bringing up even more questions that we now have to go research. <laughs> so we will do an episode on marijuana sometime soon. <laughs> so. And let me know when you do it. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, dear listener, for hanging with us. And we will be back next time with more Smart Counsel. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love your feedback, and let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at Smart Council 601, and you can email us your questions and comments and feedback at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Joshua Moore can be found on the web at neurofeedbackcare.com, and Reese Basimio can be found on the web at newpatterncounseling.com. Thank you for listening to Smart Council.